Alright, I got here and realized I completely forgot all of my notes, so that'll be fun. Uh, we are going to be finishing up most of chapter 21 tonight, so let's turn to chapter 21. What do you guys remember from the first 16 verses we went over last week? Anybody? Yep. Hey, he took off Paul's belt, right? He said, Paul, take off your belt, and let me tie myself up with it. Because everything else laid on him. Yep. There was a prophecy to happen when he gets into Rome. Of course, there was change used, and still his ideal was still the same, that he was going to be bound by the Gentiles. Yeah, we're going to read that part tonight when he gets into Jerusalem and the Romans come and they, they bind him with chains. Um, and we talked about a little bit last week how it's likely that that actually took place before he was handed over to the Romans. And so again, we'll look at that. Yep. Um, anything else you guys remember from last week? All right, how about this? I will go ahead and I'll read through the first 16 chapters. And if there's anything that is important, we can highlight it. 16 chapters. Yeah, I told you I forgot my notes, so I'm just, I'm winging it here, Joseph. 16 verses. <laughs> Chapter 21. <laughs> when we had parted from there and had set sail, we ran a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was unloading, was to unload its cargo. After looking up the disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we left. Who is the we again? Yeah, Luke's included there, right? And Paul and Luke. We left and started on our journey while they all, with wives and children, escorted us until we were out of the city. After kneeling down on the beach and praying, we said farewell to one another. Again, we pointed out how quickly these bonds were forming. It says, Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home again. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and after greeting the brethren, we stayed with them for a day. On the next day we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we had heard this, we, as well as the local residents, began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we felt fell silent, remarking, The will of the Lord be done. After these days we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. 
Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Nassim of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. So if you were to summarize those first 16 verses, not chapters, how would you do so? What are the, the key points in there? party on the beach all right yeah and they felt compelled to follow him some of them went with him right to jerusalem and why was that so profound that they would do that not just because they were leaving their hometown but what was the the surrounding events yeah yeah, so three times in just those short verses, we see that he's warned about what's to to happen to him in Jerusalem. So back in uh, three or four, um, the disciples from Tyre, they were uh, telling him what was going to happen in Jerusalem. And then uh, this guy, Agabus, shows up in 11. He says, this is what's going to happen to you when you get into Jerusalem. And then everybody else in Caesarea, they kind of freak out. And they say, dude, don't go. You need to stay here where it's safe. And they found out or they realized that he was he's not going to back down. He was committed. Um, he was already told by the Holy Spirit back in uh, chapter 20 that 20 verses 22 and 23 says, And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, <clears throat> except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. And so he said, I'm, I'm down to be bound. I know what's going to happen. I'm going to go. And then they still went with him, even knowing that he was going to face his persecution. So that was... <laughs> yeah. See ya. Right if I work. Yep. That's that's how we are, right? But these guys, they were obviously um, encouraged and persuaded to go with him, seeing the boldness and the courage that he exemplified. Any other thoughts before we jump into the rest of the chapter? All right. Picking it up in verse 17. After we arrived in Jerusalem. So this is when um, they got done staying with this guy whose name I can't pronounce. Um, Manassin of Cyprus. They arrived in Jerusalem. The brethren received us gladly. So right off the bat we see, again, this camaraderie between these these brethren. The hospitality that they show. Um, well, hospitality maybe isn't their best word. That's speaking of loving strangers, but these are our brethren in Christ. And so they're showing that, that love and that, that fellowship that they have in Christ. Um, the brethren, brethren received us gladly. Do you guys remember the purpose of his wanting to go to Jerusalem? What was, what was in Jerusalem? Why was he headed there? He was taking money. Hey, he was taking them money. Um, they were struggling. The same Agabus that we read about earlier, back in chapter 11, we saw that he was there prophesying about 
the fact that they were going to have a, a famine in Jerusalem. And this went on for for some time, and the effects of it were were lingering. And so he went and he collected money, and he was taking it to the brethren in Jerusalem. And he wanted to be there by a certain time. When did he want to get into Jerusalem? Passover. Yeah, I wanted to be there for the <clears throat> the Passover celebration. And so he had a certain time and a certain purpose for going there. Yeah, and also taking a vow, right? Um, that was back in his second missionary journey, I think, back in chapter 18. He was wanting to get with uh, James and the brother there to give them a, an accounting of what he was doing prior to that with the Gentiles, I believe. Yeah, he's, he's there and he's going to touch base with that church and give them a report. We see that um, right here in the next verse. So verse 18 says, The following day, so he got there, and the next day, he didn't waste any time, um, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So... Remind me what what Paul was doing and what his relationship was with this church at Jerusalem. What was his role and his relationship with the church at Jerusalem? Prior, when he was Saul, we're talking about, when he became Paul. When he was Paul. Yeah, that was back in 15. I think that was between his first and his second missionary journey. Have you been back since then? What's that? Have you been back since then? Um, yeah, he went back for the second, in between the second and third missionary journey. Like you had mentioned, Andy, he went back for his vow. He wanted to go back there so he could burn his hair, because that's a thing, right? When you're um, taking a, a Nazarite vow, you need to go to the temple to burn your hair. So that's why he wanted to go back in between the second and third missionary journeys. Um, and the fact that he was on missionary journeys should remind us that he was a missionary, right? And this was uh, his function, his role. Of course, he was an apostle. He was one who was untimely born, but he was also uh, a missionary. That was his his purpose. He was a missionary specifically to the Gentiles, and he wanted to go out and um, establish churches and then go back and strengthen these churches. And so his second third missionary journeys were largely going back to the people that he had met and evangelized on his first mission, first missionary journey. And now he's coming back to this church <clears throat> and he's giving them a, a report following up. Um, just like we often have missionaries do here. Um, we had the, the Anderson sisters, I think, where our most recent ones came and gave us an update what they were doing. <clears throat> and I think it's common for us to, in our minds, kind of flip the roles of a supporting church and the missionaries thinking that we are the supporting church in the sense that we're helping them and we're aiding them so that they can be out on the mission field um, doing God's work. But in reality, <clears throat> they are the ones who are serving us. They're helping us because just like Paul and the church at Jerusalem, just like every believer, we have a mission um, from Jesus himself. What was a mission that he gave to us in, in Acts 1-8 that he gave to the church. 
uh, before the church was established in Acts chapter 2? To be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. All right. And if we were to apply that to our situation to be his witnesses, where we are um, in a, a broader sense, maybe in our, our county, in our state, and to the ends of the world, if we were to do that ourselves, we would be running ourselves ragged. We wouldn't be able to settle down with a, a family. We wouldn't be able to go on with day-to-day life. And so by having missionaries that we can send out, they are helping us to fulfill that great commission. And so we need to keep that straight in our minds and realize that our missionaries are serving us. And yes, it's a, a relationship that should be mutually exclusive. <laughs> Not mutually exclusive. I'm trying to think. Mutually beneficial, yes. I'm thinking of that passage in Romans 1. Um, I bring in, I want to come to you so that you and I may uh, mutually encourage one another. Um, and that's how it should be, that we should serve them as they're helping serve us and helping us to fulfill that great commission. You know what would really cause us to feel like um, our missionary is an extension of our ministry would be if there was someone who was a part of this church who got sent out of this church. It's when people come in and we don't really know and we decide to support them and I think that's where we get off track you know, with misunderstanding that they're an extension of our ministry, where we just think yeah. we're supporting them to go do their thing. But someone like Joseph here. I was going to ask Joseph, do you have any thoughts on that that concept? <laughs> if, he, uh, if he gets a heart for Hispanic people, learns <laughs> uh, the language, and next thing you know, we're sending him off to Venezuela. There you go. And it would really feel like our church was reaching Venezuela or something. You know, that's that's where I think it would naturally feel like that. Yeah. Yeah, there is a little bit of a, a disconnect there. And the the whole system that we've adopted today for missions is, is broken. I don't know how else to say it, and I don't know what the fix is, but um, it's definitely not what was going on here, where a missionary is sent out by a church. And remember that Jerusalem wasn't his sending church. What was the sending church for Paul? Antioch. Antioch. Antioch sent out Paul and Barnabas. And yet he's coming back and he's giving a report to the church of Jerusalem. Um, and that's just not the system we see today. We get um, several different churches and individuals who will support a missionary. And you get a, a sending church and an organization involved. And it's just different and messy. And again, I don't know what the answer is. And it's what we have to work with now. And we're thankful for what we have. But we can definitely do better. It's too late to get Travis on. <laughs> yeah, I think that when people like Travis Lee, we should view them as missionaries. Um, even if we're not financially supporting them, we should be supporting them in prayer. We should be giving them a call and touching base and keeping in, in touch, keeping in contact with um, people like Travis and, and Tell and others who have gone out from us. And <clears throat> sometimes it can be discouraging, especially during COVID times where you look around and you're like, oh, we have like 15 people here today. But when you think back on people that have gone out from us, and uh, that can bring some encouragement to realize that there are people who have been touched and impacted by the ministry here that are impacting and influencing people all around the world. So it's good to try to keep our, our minds outside of our four walls. And it can be a temptation to 
get stuck here and to wallow and be sad, but we should not. There's a lot of reason for Paul to feel like Jerusalem was home, home mm-hmm. base. Because, I mean, one, he lived there, probably grew up around there somewhere. And two, that's where the Jews' center of worship was there. But the Jews, that was their center of worship. That's where the apostles started, that's where he first went and met the apostles. A lot of ways I can see how he could feel that was home, that was home base, that was yeah. the center of things. And it, you know, it's, it struck me as I read about Paul's missionary journeys. You know, Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? The tribe of Benjamin, you know, he was uh-huh. a Pharisee. Uh, he was trained by Gamaliel. I mean, he was. He was the man. He was a smart guy. He was like Uber Jew, right? He was just like way up there. Yeah. And yet, God didn't keep him in Jerusalem to confront the Sanhedrin and stuff like that. He went way up. Yeah. You know, and again, not even to the to the Jews primarily, even though he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He went to the the Gentiles. And he and he, I mean, he would he would always start in the synagogue, right? But it's like when they would um, refuse to hear the gospel and hear that Jesus was the Messiah of, of Moses and of the Old Testament. He's like, okay, later, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm going to go to to for the people that will listen where God sent me. It was, it's just interesting. I mean, Peter, Peter was a fisherman, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's the dude that's staying in Jerusalem. Him and James and, and the others. I'm not saying they were like chopped liver, but they're not Paul. Yeah. They were considered lowly. They were Galileans. That was was, uh, lowly. I'm just saying that God's economy does not compute in in Hebrew, I guess. And that was all the the plan of God from the Um, get-go, that the gospel would be for the Jew first and then for the Gentiles. And last week we kind of hammered on the fact that the Holy Spirit is a central person, the central character throughout the book of Acts, and he's the one who is leading and guiding and directing Paul as he goes to each of these places to, again, go to the Jew first, um, and then ultimately to the Gentile, and that was his his primary ministry. And as you mentioned, the I think you had mentioned, Jim, that the apostles, they were the ones who were getting things going you know, in Jerusalem. When they got this command in, in 1.8, it was just them, right? And um, they were told, hey, you need to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and Samaria, Judea, to the ends of the world. And then we got to Acts chapter 6 and we saw, well, it's getting a little bit overwhelming, right? There's thousands upon thousands who are coming to the Lord. 3,000, then 5,000, you get up to 20,000, and it gets to be a lot. And so they appoint other men to serve and to help out. In Acts 15, where you mentioned uh, the Jerusalem Council took place, where they were trying to figure out, well, what do we do with these Gentiles? Do they need to be circumcised or not? Um, We see in verse 6 of 15 (coughs) that the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And so there we see the apostles kind of starting to hand off the baton to the the local elders a little bit, to the, the pastors, the shepherds, the overseers, so that they can take more of the the role and the burden there. 
and then jumping back to where we were in our passage in chapter 21 in verse 18 who is mentioned as being there with James all the elders so no longer are the apostles there they seem to have gone out and kind of done their own thing and um, they're they're doing the same thing that Paul's doing they're being missionaries to different places and uh, spreading the word they're fulfilling that great commission and it's the elders that we see here in verse 18 that Paul went in to speak with James and all the other elders who were present in verse 19 after he had greeted them he began to relate to them one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry and it's kind of cool the the way that he he lays out that that language that God is the one who's doing these things through his ministry so he's not patting himself on the back he's not taking credit he's giving credit to God God is the one who's working among the Gentiles through his ministry and he's relating that to them so they can be encouraged so they can know they can have an update um, they can um, be aware of everything that's gone on in all the time since he's been with them since his third missionary journey verse 20 says and when they heard it they began glorifying God as they should that should be the natural result um, going on I'm going to read um, from 20b through 22 and I want you guys to think and consider what's going on in these verses um, what's what's happening and how can we uh, summarize it on a, a strategic level I guess and they said to him that is all the elders and James you see brother how many thousands are among the Jews of those who have believed and they are all zealous for the law and they have been told about you and you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs what then is to be done they will certainly hear that you have come. So what do we see going on there? Right after he gave them a report and they began glorifying God, then what takes place? Going back to the law. Yeah, the, the elders are talking to Paul about uh, other Jewish believers. He calls them uh, believers are and he's they're warning him saying hey there are these Jewish believers who are are saying some other things um, they're not not too happy with you right now Paul so just looking at that from a strategic standpoint it seems like they're they're paying attention they're listening and they're they got their ears to the ground they know what's going on um, they're well connected and they're communicating with those who are around them and they kind of sense some trouble on the horizon. And they realize, well, these guys are not too happy with this guy who just showed up. And even though we're, we're happy he's here and we're glorifying God about him, we see some trouble brewing. And we want to warn him and see if we can perhaps curb this, this whole situation from taking place. So they're kind of playing strategy game right now. Um, trying to look to the future, see what they can do to intervene and keep uh, a mess from from coming on. We'll get into that in just the kind of a next couple of verses. Though, they're believers, but they're zealous for the law. 
Yeah? What makes you think that's a contradiction? I know it seems like it initially, but what aspects? Well, the, the temple, the salvation by faith, not by works. So, uh, actually, Paul didn't teach that the Jews should be circumcised. He, he, I thought they said that Gentiles didn't have to be circumcised. Uh, of course, they said circumcision wasn't necessary for salvation. Yeah. So I guess they, they could. I mean, you know, I don't think they were trying to grasp the whole gospel. It says they believed. Um, but yeah. What they believed exactly. Well, I think that they they're believers. Um, in in Christ, I think that they are are saved uh, just because of the way that it's worded, and knowing that the Holy Spirit's the one who gave this and preserved it for us. Um, and while yeah, it seems like a contradiction because we are always preaching um, salvation by faith alone, through Christ alone, by His grace alone, especially in our context that salvation isn't something you can earn; it's not something you can do by works, and we use works as synonymous with the law. But we have to remember there were other aspects to the law and that these Jews had grown up in this. This was their whole way of living. They had different customs, different rituals that were important to them. And they were wanting to hold on to some of these. We talked about how Paul himself back in at the end of his second missionary journey, he had taken a, a Nazarite vow. And we'll see another example of that here in a moment. Um Back in Acts 18.18, it says that Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila and Centria. He had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. I know that was a while ago we went through that, but we talked about how that was a Nazarite vow and how Paul himself still seemed to have certain aspects of Jewish culture that he wanted to hold on to, not for salvation. I think that's the the key distinguishing mark to say and to recognize that Paul would not have been teaching and we know from Galatians and Romans other places that he would say you don't have to be circumcised you don't have to keep the law for salvation and again from Acts 18 itself that that isn't a requirement that um, is put on the Jews or the Gentiles but salvation is by grace alone that doesn't mean however that there aren't going to be um, different aspects of Judaism that are going to be hard for people to to shed when they're coming out of that and embracing Christ. Uh, remember that not only is Acts a, a transitional book, and we don't want to take too much uh, doctrine from Acts, but it's transitional because it's history. Remember, it's historical narrative, so it's going through and it's telling us um, what took place in, in real time in history. And so these people were trying to deal with um, all their, their old Jewish stuff while embracing this Jesus who didn't abolish the law but he fulfilled the law but what does that mean and am I still allowed to celebrate Christmas kind of thing right um, am I still allowed to do the things that I did growing up that I wasn't doing for salvation's sake but um, I still enjoy doing or I still get a yeah, connection to God with that among the believers when Paul was there the first time Celebrate Yom Kippur and you know that kind of thing. 
Well, remember, he's there to celebrate Passover, right? right. So that's still a, an Old Testament feast that he's there recognizing. He wanted to get there for that. Um, so he's still recognizing some of these things himself. Again, he took that vow back in chapter 18. Uh, he had Timothy circumcised to appease the Jews. And so there are still aspects of Judaism that he's willing to embrace, just recognizing that they're not part of embracing Christ. It's not Jesus plus um, recognizing the Passover, not Jesus plus um, circumcision. I think the testimony of the New Testament the, from the narrative aspect is that they gave uh, the believers, first believers gave a lot of space uh, to other new believers to figure things out. Because when you consider the uh, letters to the Galatians, Paul never once said, I know, now I know for sure you're not saved. He never said, uh, you guys didn't actually understand the gospel. You need to go back and truly believe. He still called them brothers. And uh, they were buying into a bunch of stuff. And so, I don't know. There's a lot of grace given to people to work things out and to figure things out and just let them kind of go at their own pace. I mean, that's what this is. They're letting them go at their own pace. They're not saying, we just need to correct them. Yeah. They're saying, we, we need to come alongside them and uh, don't cause them to stumble over something like this, which is pretty wild. Yeah. Very wild. Because being turned around, they're accusing Paul. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and it wasn't like they were talking about garden variety pagans, right? That were worshiping Moloch or something like that. They were talking about the Jews that had the oracles of Moses, right? And, and the prophets. It wasn't like they were. They should have known. They should have known their God and they should have known the Messiah. Yeah, yeah, I think these these people did. I think that's what's indicated when they're right. called Jewish believers. Right. Yeah, and in James, the way that he talks talks about them, James doesn't say you need to go witness to them. You know, we need yeah. to give them the gospel. Yeah, that wasn't Jesus the answer. Like they're of the faith. Yeah, sure. I just wonder if they felt like some people say to us, "Then you can live however you want." They they take that that he was teaching against all of this stuff so you can live however you want and maybe they were um, misunderstanding as well. And in verse 24 they want Paul to show those Jews that he himself was in observance of the law. Yeah. They want him to communicate that with them. Yeah, so it seems like there's definitely some miscommunication, Shara, that they're getting this information um, second, third hand, so they're they're attributing to Paul things that aren't true of Paul, right? So let's see. It says at in twenty, you see, brother, how many thousands? That's uh, myriads, so tens of thousands, so a bunch. There are among the Jews of those who have believed. Again, they're believers, and they are all zealous for the law. Again, that we shouldn't take that as synonymous as. Um, they embrace salvation by works, but they're still zealous for these things that they they grew up in, uh, things in the Old Testament that are pointing to Christ. And they have been told about you that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Is that true? No, he's not teaching the Jews to forsake Moses, right? He's just saying that there's not salvation in Moses, but there is one who is greater than Moses who has come. 
telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. Are either of those things true? Did he tell the Jews not to circumcise children? No. He said that the Gentiles didn't have to circumcise their children in order to be saved. You don't have to become a Jew before you can become a, a Christian, is what the Judaizers were, were saying. And we referenced Galatians. Over in Galatians 5.11, Paul says, But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, then why am I still persecuted? So it seems like people are saying that he is preaching circumcision there. Uh, so it's like two different things. So in Galatians, they're saying, well, you're saying that we have to be circumcised. And then here it's saying, well, you're saying that we don't have to be circumcised. So he's getting it from, from both sides. People are trying to figure out what's going on. Do we have to be circumcised or not? Paul's saying you don't have to be circumcised. Um, but he's not telling the Jews that they cannot be circumcised either. So... He's not telling them you have to completely abandon all of your rituals and traditions, but you certainly don't embrace those and add those to the gospel. The Jews still had to be circumcised to be in the temple. Yeah, but not to be in Christ. Yep. And that's why he had Timothy circumcised. The contradiction is they don't really understand, and it's not a lot of hearsay there, but fact that nobody's trying to tell them they're now telling Paul he's the one yeah and so these this group here they are believing Jews and they're confused they're trying to figure out what's going on right and later on we're going to see some Jews who I don't believe are believers come in and they're trying to disrupt things pretty drastically and I think that they are probably the Judaizers who are responsible in large part for the miscommunication that these believing Jews are experiencing so let's keep going. In verse 22, um, again, James and the elders come together and they say, well, what then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So again, they're strategizing. They're trying to figure out what's going to happen. How do we handle this? Um, 23, therefore, do this that we tell you. Again, one important aspect. These are the, the elders and James now telling the apostle, you need to do this. This is... Uh, a command, a, an imperative command. Go out and, and do this, Mr. Apostle, to the Gentiles, Paul, who is untimely born, who met Jesus on the road to Damascus. We're telling you yeah, that we have... James was <coughs> Jesus' half-brother, so... <coughs> it doesn't mean he was an apostle. But he had way more time with Jesus, though. You, 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 As an unbeliever. We don't know what James believes. <laughs> we know that he was an unbeliever. Well, everybody was at one point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What do you mean? I'm just saying you referenced Paul and that Jesus on the road to Damascus, but James is like, yeah. <laughs> Jesus changed my diaper as my big brother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we're we're seeing this transition to from from the apostles to the elders, and the elders are now telling Paul how to handle and approach this situation, which is kind of a shift. No, he, he, right he submits to him. Yeah. <laughs> well, because yeah, James and those elders have more knowledge of what's going on than Paul does. Paul's been out and he's been galvanizing in Europe. Right? Yeah. So. All right, so they say, therefore, do this that we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow, likely that same Nazarite vow we talked about in 18. Uh, you can read about it in Leviticus 6, I think. Numbers. Numbers 6. Okay. And 24 says, Take them and purify yourself along with them, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. 
and all will know that there is nothing to to the things which they have been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. And so they come up with this plan, I guess. Um, I don't know. It Initially, to me, it seems kind of schemy, I guess. But really what they're trying to do is to let these Jewish believers know that Paul is not against them, that Paul is not against these Jewish rituals, these Jewish rites. And so they say, hey, let's have you identify with these Jewish rites by going and partaking in this ritual, this vow, with these four men that we have. And just so they don't think that you're scheming, um, why don't you pay for them too, to show that you're really invested, that you really care, and that you're not against that, um, that system principally. Verse 25 says, but concerning the Gentiles, so that was for the Jews and what he wanted the Jews to understand from him going and partaking in this vow with these four believers. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote already referencing back to chapter 15, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrifice to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. Um, those things in particular, because they pertained to idolatry and they would be especially uh, offensive to the Jews and their transition into this new way of Christianity. Then Paul took the men, again, not not arguing, not fighting back, but submitting to the, the elders there. Then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. So he went along with their plan. Um, he seemed to think that that was a good idea and took these four men and um, completed this vow with them. Thoughts or questions on all of that? Because that's kind of a lot. Well, I'm sure that the Jews themselves, maybe we know the Judaizers was against Paul. These did not seem to be Judaizers, but they were Jews that believed in obeying the customs yeah. of the Jewish people. Yep. And that's what they're trying to emphasize because they don't want to open the door to the Judaizers even if they can stop it before it happens by getting him to do these things which was in line with the, the uh, Moses law and coming into Pentecost also which is a very profound feast yeah so those two things that explains why there are myriads there too, because of the, their customs were very Yeah, if you know a, a person who is practicing Judaism right now, you know how devout they can be. And this is right out of Judaism. You know, Christianity was new on the scene. So, yeah, it was strong customs to, to overcome. And I don't think that Paul is encouraging them to, to overcome these customs. He's not saying you have to get rid of these customs. And he's actually demonstrating that it's okay to, to hold on to some of these customs, but they're not... Um, the way to salvation. I think 
what stuck out to me most in all this is looking at um, the the elders and how they were planning and how they were aware and how they were um, in communication. They knew there was a potential for uh, disunity that they wouldn't be okay with Paul and they were looking to to plan ahead and see okay well how can we make this all better than what it seems like it's going to be otherwise and it just caused me to to wonder and to question are we doing a good job at that because um, I know that I could be doing a better job I think we could all be doing a better job um, let me just ask you what your plan is for your television viewing this week. What's on on Thursday nights? Do you guys know? What about Tuesday nights? Do you guys have like a go-to TV show on Tuesday? It used to be football. Yeah. Yeah, this year has been kind of unique, right? We have football like almost every day of the week because of COVID. Um, yeah, Sunday. I'm, I know what I'm watching on Sunday, right? At 1 o'clock and after one o'clock like i i go home and i turn on the tv and after the first game i switch the channel to the second game because i don't even have to know i just know that within 10 or 15 minutes the second game comes on um but what about our our plan for um for how we are going to fulfill the great commission what about our plan for for prayer um biden just took office today and he's got a hundred day plan right off the bat right um and yeah he's leading a nation but we are we are representing a king and a kingdom what kind of plan do we have um i was convicted when travis left because he had told me that um, he prays for me and my family every day at five in the morning and that was cool and i pray for travis but I can't tell him, this is when I pray for you. This is how often I pray for you. Um, so that was convicting to me. And reading through this and seeing their diligence to to kind of forecast and to be aware of what's going on and to, to play defense a little bit, it was convicting to me. And so I actually printed off some, um, some prayer request lists that, that I've used in the past. And I printed off a bunch. You guys can take them if you'd like. Uh, 100 weekly prayer requests and so it's got prayer requests that you can pray for on each day up at the top Monday and Thursday Tuesday and Friday Wednesday and Saturday um, and then every day 10 different things you can pray for special requests and so those are available to you guys if you don't have a system for prayer if you do that's great but I know that that's an area that's easy for me to slip and we should have some kind of plan for for what we do and take a note out of their book and be a little bit more intentional. Andy, do you have something? Well, I was just thinking that, um, you know, Paul was um, willing to, I don't know if it, he's going in like clandestine or whatever, where he's taking these Gentile believers into into the temple and fulfilling his, his vow, right? Yeah. Or, or fulfilling their vows. Um, um, I don't think that was Gentile believers. That was four right, men sorry. who were under vow. Yeah. Sorry, four, four Jewish believers. Yep. But I guess you know what pops into my mind is you know we're supposed to be gentle as doves and you know wise as serpents, right? Yeah. 
In other words, we can go along where we can go along, and we don't where we can't. Yeah, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And um, you know, I think Jeremy mentioned it a couple weeks ago that we're probably going to have to learn some compromises. I know that I'm going to have to. Yeah. Um, it's drawing that line. That's that's sometimes the challenge. Feels like. Yeah. You know, and I, I'm positive that was something that they wrestled with. You know, because it wasn't that uh, Paul wasn't um, countering Moses. He was he was fulfilling what Moses was saying was going to come. Right. That's that's the key. That's what Jesus said. He's like you know, or Abraham. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Right. It wasn't that, that, he, that he came in. He was some sort of foreigner. He was a Jew, and he was he was satisfying the requirements of the law. And that, I guess, my point is, is that it was the political and religious establishment having a problem with what Paul was saying. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so like, Paul was like Paul was subtle when he went into the synagogues, right? Oh, uh, he he was bold, he was right? Pretty straightforward. Yeah. yeah, he was pretty zealous himself, right? Yes, he spoke absolutely. about that how he was as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church, and that zeal transferred over into his Christian walk as well. Um, and he wasn't again condemning these Christians; he wasn't um, embracing them. It was definitely a, a conscience issue that he was okay with them doing. Uh, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 type of issue. Um, and I mean, we can learn from that too. And we need to recognize that too and deal through and, and work through all those different things. Um, in, in our context, being in, in Utah, do we not serve coffee on Sunday morning because a Latter-day Saint might walk in and be offended by that? Um, I mean, I wouldn't condemn another church for doing that, but I don't have that conviction myself. Um, but referencing them as Latter-day Saint, um, I mean, they asked not too long ago that they not be addressed as Mormons, and I don't have a problem not addressing them as Mormon. Um, and they said... That's, that's believer and unbeliever, though. Yeah. As opposed to believer with believer. It's not a Holy Spirit-informed conscience that they have. So that, the, the spirit of accommodation, I think, is different with an unbeliever than it is with a fellow <laughs> believer. Uh, heaven forbid we would ever make decisions in our church based on unbelievers. But if a recently saved, a recently converted Latter-day Saint has a stumbling block issue, then that's a different Yeah, issue. that's definitely a potential, and we've had several of those. But, yeah, stuff that we have to think through, but it shouldn't divide. Um, yeah. All right. Um, let's pick it up in verse 27. When the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple... So, these are different Jews here, I believe. They're not the same Jews that we were talking about before, the, um, the believing Jews who were struggling through these things. But these Jews are from Asia, most likely from Ephesus. He had had a run-in with them before. So, these Jews from Asia, Asia Minor, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, on Paul crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. 
And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Again, just causing problems, stirring up trouble, um, slandering Paul with lies. We have no reason to believe that he did these things. We know that he wouldn't have done um, these things, preaching against the law in this place. Um, they're just trying to cause a ruckus for Paul. Um, and they give an example, 29, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Um, let's see. All right, 30. Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. And last week we had mentioned here that these are Jews, right? And just in accord with Agabus's prophecy, the Jews took him and they seized him. They were dragging him out of the temple. It's likely that they took and they bound him up with a, a belt or something similar, whatever they had at hand. And then they handed him over to the, uh, to the Gentiles. And we'll see that here in 31. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So this commander figures out that there's a ruckus, and he's the one who's in charge. He has uh, jurisdiction over this. He's a commander of a thousand soldiers. And so 32, at once he took along some soldiers and centurions. So the centurions were under his guard, under his command. And he ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So you have a, a thousand soldiers show up, and that'll probably stop you from doing whatever you're doing, right? Um, so they were beating him. They had taken him out by force. Um, and then, ironically, the, the Roman Gentile pagans have to show up to stop the the children of God, his chosen nation, from beating his prophet. Um, and when they see the Romans come up, they stopped beating Paul. 33. Then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he began asking who he was and what he had done. And so, again, we had mentioned last week how um, people, especially um, in the New Apostolic Reformation um, type movement will point to this and they'll say, well, this is a, a false prophecy by Agabus because it wasn't the uh, the Jews who bound Paul. They didn't do it with a rope. It was the Romans who did it, and they did it with chains. And they're just misapplying where that's, that's taken from. So they're saying that here where the Romans are bounding, binding him with two chains is the fulfillment of Agabus's prophecy earlier in chapter 21, where I think it fits better for the the Jews to have handed him over to the Romans as as Agabus had said. Yes, sure. Did he really take Greeks in there or were they just making that up? I think they're just throwing stuff and seeing what'll stick. We have no reason to believe that he actually took Jews into there. Um, yeah, there were very strict rules that the Gentiles could not go into the the inner court. They were um, confined to the, the court of the Gentiles. Yeah. That was, that was part of the largest part, and where most of the activity was. Yeah. It's hard to imagine, you know, what Paul would gain by taking Gentiles in there. Like, yeah. when he was trying to accommodate those other guys, why would he try to stir things up at the same time? And again, that's why he had Timothy circumcised, so he could go into the inner court without um, 
being in violation of that. Because again, because they were so strict, they had signs posted all over the place, and apparently we found some signs that say, you know, no Gentiles allowed past this point, or else and it's punishable by death. Mm-hmm. What's that? And face covering. <laughs> yeah, right? So the Jews from Asia, I mean, they named them, they said they'd seen Paul with Trophimus the Ephesian in the city. Yeah. Right? And they assumed that since Paul is in the court, that he's brought the, the Greeks with him. Right? They, see, they saw him walk around with this Trophimus, and they're like, oh, Trophimus has got to be here somewhere. Yeah. So as they supposed, he took me. Again, they're just they're causing a stir. Yeah, because they in the court of the Gentiles. Yeah, but I think they're they're saying that he took them inside. Temple, but that wasn't quote the temple. It was so yeah, it's, it's kind of messy. Yeah. They're just defaming. If you see the pictures people. of the temple, then they say here's the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles could be in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it would only be a an accusation that would really cause people to be in an uproar if it was supposed that they went inside the inner court. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably what they were slandering him with. Yeah, and that's why there was such an uproar. All right, verse 34. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. Clearly, they're not all on the same page. They're just a big mob, right? We know all about those. And when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. So, I don't know if that's because of his injuries or because the mob was continuing to be violent, even though he had a a thousand soldiers escorting him, but he needed to be carried um, on their account anyway. Verse 36, for the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting away with him. Um, so yeah, quite a quite a violent mob. The Romans come in, and here they're, they're the rescuers, temporarily. But he is now in under Rome's control, under their jurisdiction. Um, and the prophecies that were foretold earlier in the chapter have been fulfilled. Um, this prophecy that Agabus brought, um, everything that was being said in uh, Troas and um, in Caesarea, it's all come to fruition. He is now bound and in chains. And we'll pick up next week in verse 37. Thoughts or questions before we wrap up? So we already read how like these people who were telling him, you know, don't go to Jerusalem, you're going to be in trouble. How they were being told that by the Spirit, right? Mm-hmm. And so, doesn't that mean that, like, Paul maybe was kind of like going as the spirit when he wanted yeah, to? Yeah, that's what we talked about last week. Go back and listen to the, the recording on that okay, one. Okay, yeah, because I wasn't here yeah. last week. But, yeah, that, just reading it and taking it for face value, it kind of seems like maybe Paul was disobeying the spirit, right? But remember, earlier we had read in chapter 20, verses 22 and 23, that he was warned by the spirit um, that he was going to be bound in chains and he says I don't know what awaits me except for in every single city I go into the Holy Spirit tells me so over and over again I'm being reminded I'm going to be in chains and he still pushed forward so what we kind of concluded was that 
these people were certainly told by the Spirit, but that they took and they misinterpreted that to mean that he should not go into Jerusalem. Yeah, the Spirit told them he was going to be persecuted in Jerusalem, not to to keep him back, not to restrict him from going there, but uh, to to help him count the cost and let him know what was ahead. Other thoughts? <laughs> and there was, you know, there was like a lot of good people, or like his disciples that were trying to get him not to. Yeah, Peter said no. Yeah. Yeah, and he said, get behind me, Satan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and right after Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus commended him, yeah, it's not flesh and blood that's revealed this to you, but God the Father. And then he rebukes him. And he says, no, get behind me, Satan. You don't stop me from going to the cross. Don't stop me from doing what I know I'm supposed to be doing. And that's similar to what went on earlier in 21, where all these people were trying to you know, keep their friend back. They don't want their friend to get hurt and beaten and killed. Um, but he said, no, I'm, I'm bound and I'm determined. I know what's ahead for me. The Holy Spirit's told me, and, and I'm ready and I'm willing. So don't hold me back. And that's when they said, okay, well, we'll, we'll go with you. So that was pretty impactful for them. All right. Yeah, I would have took it just over there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you and me both. Maybe I need another trip up north here. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go ahead and pray. Um, don't forget to come grab one of these prayer things if you don't have some kind of system for prayer in your life right now. And uh, again, look around and remember we have people who are out, people who are hurting, um, some who haven't been here in months and months. Um, not because they've forgotten about us, not because they don't want to be here, but. Um, just circumstances. Yeah. The instructors are going to the hospital at 8 tomorrow morning to have their baby. All right. Cool, cool. All right, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you again for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit and how he guides us. We thank you for your church and your people. And we pray for those who aren't here, those who are hurting. Pray specifically for the Stuckers and uh, for the the new Stucker that will be joining us shortly. Um, we thank you for life and how you give life. And um, you give life abundant, life to the full. We pray that you would give uh, everlasting life to those in our lives who who don't know you, that you would use us as your instrument, your ambassadors, your um, your willing emissaries to speak truth into their life, to be bold and courageous and be willing to risk um, losing friendships and relationships and uh, status uh, for the sake of the gospel. It's a gospel that empowers. Um, God, we thank you for the gospel. Pray for the, the Howards and, and their adoption, that you'd be working in that, um, in the life of that child and uh, the mother and all the, um, the details that are involved with that. God, we thank you again for who you are. Thank you for your son and for the cross. Amen.